chapter 4. Now, uh, one thing as we begin that I um, didn't put into my sermon, but it, I, I realized it as I was reading the second half of Exodus 4. So this is not my sermon. This is just added bonus content. Uh, but it's really important, actually. Um, in, in verse 22, I just want you to notice, it says, then, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my oldest son. And it's just really interesting that uh, this is the first time in the scriptures that God is shown to be the father, to be a father to the people of Israel. And so Israel's identity actually first comes as, as people who are the children of God. Their identity actually comes as the son, son, the people of God, not even in the law. Like this is the, the relationship with God as father comes before even their relationship in the law. And so that's, it actually builds this confidence in the people of Israel that even if we don't follow the law perfectly, we are still the people of God, and he is still our father. And so just a really uh, important little tidbit that I, as I was preparing my sermon, totally forgot to include. So here we are. Um, last week, Ashlyn did this amazing job talking about the call of Moses and how each one of us is part of that grand call of Jesus, that, that some of us experience personal calls like Moses in our lives, and others of us experience that grand universal call, uh, not unlike the people who are trapped in Egypt, right? Only Moses experienced the burning bush, but everybody was invited into the freedom of the Exodus. So everyone experiences an invitation. Everyone experiences a call from God in their lives. It, sometimes it just means being faithful, living together as saints, as a different community. A, a, a church is meant to be our call together to show the world what it's like when we live out our faith in Jesus together. What I find so interesting in this next section of chapter 4 is that Moses keeps fighting the call. So he's experienced the call in 3, and now in 4 he's going to argue with God. He keeps fighting it. And, and I've just wondered, how, how often have we, have I thought, like, I just wish God would speak to me like he spoke to Moses or to Gideon or, or to Peter. Like, we have these stories, and then God gives a direct personal call to somebody and says, this is the direction of your life. I want you to go do that. And yet, as we read these stories of call, what we discover is that very rarely is that personal call enough. It's, it's rarely enough for them to obey. It, it doesn't remove the doubt about whether God really wants us to go into a Gentile's home and eat his unclean food. It doesn't relieve our fears of leading a people against the oppression of the oppressor. And so even after having a personal conversation with God, in which God promised to be with Moses and to use Moses to bring the people to liberation, Moses' first reaction is to doubt and create excuses. Eventually, in verse 13, Moses just says, please, Lord, just send someone else. I think this should be a reminder to us all that God doesn't overpower our free will. He, or he doesn't make us do what he wants in his plans. 
God's call doesn't mean that it's an easy thing to do. And even if you had a burning bush experience in which God spoke to you clearly, it doesn't make it any easier. Following through is still hard. God is willing, though, also we see in this first half of four, that God is willing to work with our fears and to help us. And, and God is with Moses in this case. God promises to help us in our inadequacies. In verse 11 and 12, it says this, Then the Lord said to him, Who gives the people the ability to speak? Who is responsible for making them unable to speak or hard of hearing, sighted or blind? Isn't it I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak. I will teach you what you should say. I think Jamie's translation actually said it very well. It said, I will be with your mouth. God promises to be with the greatest limitation that Moses feels like he has. He says, well, I can't talk. I, my mouth doesn't work. And God, in three, Ashlyn did a great job of reminding us that it's not about Moses' networking skills. It's not about his ability to, like, you know, draw on his relationships with other Egyptians or his, his great leadership skills that he earned while he took care of the sheep. It, it's actually Moses' qualification for the work is that God will be with him. And now in four, God actually says, not only am I with you, I will be with that inadequacy that you feel, that limitation that most you most feel like it disqualifies you. I will be with that particular part. I will be with your mouth. If you think your mouth is the problem, then I will be with that too. Finally, in this section, we learn that God never planned for Moses to do it alone. Notice in verse 14, when God says that he will send Moses' brother to help him speak, sometimes we read that as like this accommodation, like God was like, fine, if you won't obey me, I'll, I'll send your brother along with you, right? But if you read for verse 14 carefully, he says, he's on his way out to meet you now. He's looking forward to seeing you. So Aaron has already been... While, while we see the story of God and God's plan to use Moses, there is something else happening in the background of that story already. God is already moving other pieces to support and help those he has called. We aren't called to do God's work or plan alone. He has us in community. He, we are called to work towards God's purposes together. God places us in a community of faith, brings others around us with the same passion to love and encourage us and strengthen us and help us through. And that's all I want to say about the easy half of the chapter. I actually want to focus on this passage of Scripture that's really weird. Uh, I was sharing with Greg and Ashlyn this week that it isn't fair. Um, Ashlyn got a fantastic, extremely practical passage of Exodus about God's call and how each one of us receives God's call to be a holy people. And I heard so many positive comments from people in the congregation over this last week about how Ashlyn's message really spoke to you and encouraged you and, uh, and was like, God was speaking. And then we turned the page over to Exodus 4, which contains this per incredibly bizarre story in which Moses agrees to do what God asks. He's on his way to do what God told him to do, and then God apparently tries to kill him in the night, and Moses or his son, the text isn't very clear, is saved because Zipporah, Moses' wife, grabs a flint knife, circumcises her son, and lays her son's skin on Moses' feet. 
euphemism, highly, strongly intended. And while that is just a weird story, <laughs> how do you preach that? <laughs> well, actually, um, Ashlyn gave me a wonderful three-point application for this. One, when traveling, always beware of God. Uh, two, always keep a flint at hand. You never know when you might need it. And three, always trust your wife, even when her ideas seem a little unorthodox. And then Greg came up with a great alliteration for it, and we said, we're going to call this sermon Fear, Flint, and Faith. And uh, so there we go. Great practical application. Always carry a flint. Always be afraid of God when you're traveling anywhere, and always trust your wife. Um, I, I laughed. Uh, when I put the sermon online later, I will be calling it Fear, Flint, and Faith, although that is not actually what I think the passage is about. But the more I am reading Exodus, the more I am struck at how incredibly weird and strange the Bible is. There are strange stories like this one, and like uh, Greg is preaching next week on the plagues, and then the week after that I get to preach on Exodus 12 where it's like the question becomes, does God kill babies? So we're going to have to wrestle through those stories. And, and as a pastor, as somebody who is, in, is told to like teach the Bible, I just don't want to skip these parts. Because I think we do need to wrestle with the oddities. This story was included for some reason. So what is it? Now, when we read these stories, one of the things that comes clear is that actually um, sometimes how we read the story tells us more about how we view God than anything else. And so one of the things that my interpretive key, the passage that I cling to when I come to weird stories about God trying to kill people in the night is uh, John 1.18. It says, No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. So whenever I'm reading strange stories in the Hebrew scripture, I keep this verse in mind. This is how I know what God is like. Jesus has explained God. And everything else, to me, I just remind myself, well, these authors haven't seen God fully yet. They see dimly. They have experiences of God, but they are also working through a cultural lens and a God is accommodating their views of him as they write. And when we come to Jesus, Jesus explains God to us. So that's my interpretive clear, uh, lens. So I wrote pages of explanation about what is happening, putting it in its ancient historical context, explaining ancient Greek, Hebrew, and Mesopotamian culture, things that were happening here. And if you ever want to hear about what the self-circumcision of the ancient Greek god, Titan god, Kronos, has to do with this story, we can talk about that some other time, because in the end, I'm going to skip all of the background work, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds, and I'm going to simply skip the showing your work part, and I'm going to skip to the application. Um, so if you're a math teacher and you like to see how like the ones and twos all get carried so that the answer is there, I just skip to the answer. Um, what I'd like to suggest to you is that as Moses is leaving Midian, he's been living as one in a city of refuge in some sense for the murder of the Egyptian taskmaster. 
But Hebrew, ancient worldview had this whole idea that if uh, you murdered someone, there was a pollution, a stain, a, a scent of sin that remained on you. That you were still polluted by the blood of the one that you killed. And so Moses has been living in sanctuary, but now as he begins to return to the scene of the crime, as it were, the stain, the stench of his murder remains with him. The story reminds me over the last few weeks that it doesn't matter that God has called Moses for a special purpose or that God has big plans for who Moses will become. Before Moses can do any of the things God has called him to, the sin of the past has to be dealt with. Moses carries with him the polluting smell of death, and it must be washed away. Now, the mechanism of the cleansing is very strange. We've never seen anything like this, and we never see anything like it again in the Bible or any of the Jewish writings. There does seem to be a very strange syncretism between Zipporah's Midianite beliefs and Yahweh. But regardless, God apparently takes this act as a cleansing, as an atonement for his sin. Maybe the blood is a foreshadowing to the Lamb's blood of the Passover or to the blood of Jesus that will come thousands of years later. But this story reminded me of the confession that we shared this morning. It says, Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and is what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Now most of us do not experience the consuming fire of judgment as God attempting to kill us in the night. but I think we are all aware of the weight of sin when it lives in us. We are all aware of that consuming fire that that lives in different ways when we are walking in ways against God's will for our lives. I wonder if Moses lived for 40 years with a sin that his lips trembled to name. I wonder if he ever told Zipporah about his younger years. I wonder how that bore into his own heart. You don't take a life easily. That will weigh on you. But friends, you see, we can't deceive God. We might tremble to name our sins, but they will weigh us, and eventually we can no longer bear it, and it becomes a consuming fire of judgment. God does not want to destroy you or your sin. God wants to set you free. Look in verse 24. It says, God tried to kill him. Or other translations say sought to or was about to. And isn't this a strange moment? I think about Yoda's famous words, do or do not, there is no try. How does God, the author of life, the one who controls everything, who sustains the universe, try to kill Moses? Either God does it or he doesn't. And so what we hear in verse, in verse 24 is God's judgment of Moses' sin as an opportunity to be cleansed. 
There's an opportunity to be set free. It's strange, it's weird, it's bloody, and all of these weird, bloody activities of the night don't lose sight of the mercy of God that is displayed. God tried. There was a moment in which Moses had an opportunity to be cleansed. Which reminds me of the next part of our confession of sins. It says, set us free from a past that we cannot change and open to us a future in which we can be changed. Moses' past cannot be changed. Even God cannot change the past. At the same time, Moses' past will not disqualify him from a great future. But that future will not come at the expense of what he has not done. God is not sweeping his sin under the rug and pretending that that murder did not happen. God is able to free us from a past that we cannot change. And God can rewrite our futures. God can change our story and our nature. Moses' past cannot be changed, but God can change his future. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul begins by giving some examples of those who carry the stain of sin on them, and then he writes in verse 11, that is what some of you used to be. You used to be like that. But you were washed clean. You were made holy to God, and you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Today we live in light of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Thank goodness we don't have to deal with any weird circumcision in the night things. We know that Jesus is our high priest by whose blood we have been cleansed. We may not be able to change our past, but God longs to set us free from it. We might not be who we want to be, but God can set before us a new future. Who we were, who we might even feel like right now in this moment, it is not who we have to be. And in this very moment, God is offering to set you free from a past, from the judgment that you may feel in your soul, and set you on a new course in your future, to a new land, so that you and I can be washed clean, made holy, made right with God because of Jesus. Don't live with the weight of your sins any longer. Don't live with the fire of judgment that I know some of you feel. Don't wait until God meets you in the night. <laughs> Instead, let us do what Jesus' very good friend John did. But if we live in the light in the same way that he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. If we claim we don't have any sin, we just deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. Amen. <laughs>